Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Everyone, welcome to another aftermath episode. With us today are producer Amanda Lund. Hello, everyone. And fact checker Chris Smith. When I say after, you say math. Oh, after. Boy. I say after. No. <laughs> when Amanda says after, I say math. But then aren't oh wait, I forget how call and repeat happens. Yes, okay. clearly. <laughs> I don't like we established in the Black Sox scandal, I don't do sports. <laughs> so We'll get it next time, Chris. Um, okay. So today we are uh, we have a great interview with uh, Alex Wellerstein. He's a historian of science specializing in history of nuclear weapons and nuclear secrecy. He's also the author of the Nuclear Secrecy blog. Um, it's a really interesting talk that we had. So let's jump right in. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you today? Good. I'm so excited to have you on our show today. I'm glad to be here. We are talking about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and trying to get down to the bottom of who's to blame 
um, for these uh, two tragedies. Um, can you give us an overview on the global race to build the first nuclear bomb? The earliest, uh, uh, the, the sort of discovery that sets all of this off was the discovery in late 1938, 1939, um, by uh, a group of physicists and chemists in Berlin, uh, led by Otto Hahn, uh, that you could split uranium atoms with neutrons, uh, nuclear fission. And this is a scientific discovery. They did this work on an apparatus that could fit on a reasonably large dinner table, um, and yet it would have uh, massive implications. Because very soon afterwards, people realized, well, if you can split a uranium atom with a neutron, and if that produces more neutrons, then you can set off a chain reaction. If you set it off correctly, you can make about a trillion, trillion uranium atoms split in about a millionth, uh, excuse me, about thousandth of a second. And if you do that, you have enough energy released to destroy a city. So this scientific discovery led a number of scientists in a bunch of countries, uh, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, Germany, Italy, France, Japan, uh, to go to their governments and say, hey, this nuclear physics stuff isn't some weird abstract stuff that doesn't matter, that this potentially could make a weapon. And so scientists start doing that uh, by 1939. Uh, there's several steps that go between saying, hey, government, you should be paying attention to this, to eventually leading to the uh, recommendation of, hey, let's build a bomb. Um, that doesn't happen for several years in the United States' case. But um, from 1939 onward, there are scientists globally starting to think about whether or not this is something that's going to happen in the short term. And uh, closer to, you know, when the bomb was actually tested in New Mexico, um, who was really involved in, in, in the race toward um, building the first atomic bomb? What countries? So, sure. So the way it, it, it goes, uh, the United States was extremely afraid uh, that the Germans were building their own bomb and had their own program. They later found out that the Germans weren't actually doing this, that they had a, a relatively modest research program and had never decided to actually build a bomb. But the United States decided in around 1942 that because it was afraid of the Germans building a bomb, that it would go forward with this. And as to who pushed this decision forward, the person making the recommendation to uh, uh, the president was an engineer named Vannevar Bush, spelled Vannevar, but it's pronounced Vannevar. Um, and he was basically Roosevelt's top science advisor during World War II. And he got very interested in this work starting around 1941 or so. And he had encouraged Roosevelt first to give money to have a sort of pilot project to sort of see if this could be done. And then by 1942, he was confident enough that it could be done relatively quickly. He thought it would take maybe a year. Um, it took longer than that. Um, and he went to Roosevelt and said, let's do this. And Roosevelt approved it, and he approved it with a very simple, he just wrote, okay, FDR, on the memo that Bush had put out there. And from that point onward, what that meant was that the U.S. Army was going to be involved 
in actually building this thing, that it was not just going to be a science experiment, but this was going to be a military weapon that was going to be built and produced in time for the war. So in terms of who's responsible, you can trace a lot of chains there. You can say, well, Vannevar Bush is responsible in the sense that if he hadn't done this, it wouldn't have happened. Ultimately, the sort of political authority came from Roosevelt himself, the president. Um, Jumping forward to the test in New Mexico, you have a different president. You have Truman. Truman was not even told about the bomb until he became president, until after uh, Roosevelt died. So he was actually much more recently, you know, only came into even the knowledge of the project in uh, April of 1945. Wow. Um, I I actually did not know that Truman didn't know um, at the time when he became, until he became president. He learned about it on literally the day he was sworn in. Um, the Secretary of War, who'd been uh, Henry Stimson, he had been very closely following the events of the bomb work for those years. He went to Truman after Truman was sworn in and said, I have to tell you about this project we're working on. Um, and then later, a few, week, uh, a few weeks later, they actually had a longer briefing. And, um, and Truman was deliberately kept out of it by Roosevelt. And we don't really know why. Um, Roosevelt didn't get, didn't know Truman that well. Um, the previous vice president he had before Truman, uh, Henry Wallace, uh, knew about the bomb project and was actually involved in administering it. So Truman came into it knowing that all this stuff was going on. And Truman's attitude was along the lines of, uh, Roosevelt had been the president during the war for most of it. He was the president who had basically won the war in Europe, um, and that Truman wasn't going to rock the boat. So in many cases, Truman basically thought he was doing what Roosevelt had intended. It's actually not clear always on the atomic things uh, what Roosevelt had intended. He didn't tell very many people uh, what he planned to do with the bombs. Were they planning to use it on Japan? He's actually very enigmatic in that sense. Wow. So it, so I, I'm taking that. It, it's probably really hard to know how motivated Truman was to really carry through with the bombings, you know, in, in the sense of trying to prove to the world that America had this first nuclear bomb. Truman's real interest in the bomb in the sense that he became acutely interested in it happened after the test of the bomb. So that happened in uh, July 1945, the, the Trinity test. And that news was sent to Truman. Truman was at the time at the Potsdam Conference in Germany. Um, Germany had been defeated. He was discussing sort of the end of the war and trying to deal with uh, Stalin for the first time. And Truman has no foreign policy experience and was felt like he was really in over his head. And the Soviets were proving very difficult. And so for Truman, it came as this really positive news. Congratulations, you now have a super weapon. And uh, everyone who was sort of around Truman at the time remarked that, even if they didn't know why, that Truman suddenly seemed like he had confidence, and he suddenly seemed he was willing to make demands of the Soviets and push back against Stalin. And so in that sense, um, it was clearly very important to Truman. But it's not clear that he took it very seriously until they had tested it and found that it was this amazing weapon. So... In your opinion, who do you think is to blame for the bombing of uh, of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki? I mean, obviously, it's a complex issue. But if you had to send one person or one thing to our alarmist jail, who or what do you think it would be? Well, the interesting thing is it's 
It's not Harry Truman. And that's surprising to a lot of people that he's very peripheral to all of the decision-making about the use of the bomb. Uh, he, he took part in exactly one decision about the bomb, which was agreeing with the Secretary of War that Kyoto would not be a target of the atomic bomb, in fact, wasn't a target of any bombing, and that Hiroshima would be the target. Um, but the decision to use the bomb was as far as anyone was concerned, was a decision that had been made years before when they started the whole project. There was never any sort of sitting down and saying, are we going to do this or not? Uh, they, they, everybody sort of thought that it would be used. Um, and uh, uh, so, if, But if I was going to give one person blame or credit, depending on how you see it, because uh, people see it differently, uh, the one person who had the largest and most outsized influence on both the creation of the bomb and the choice as to how it was used and the choices on where it was used and the choices on when it was used, all of that, um, that would be General Leslie Groves. So General Leslie Groves was the head of the Manhattan Project. He was the top military officer working on it. He was uh, Robert Oppenheimer's boss on the project. When I said that Bush and all them, they gave the project to the Army, that's who they gave it to, this guy named Groves. And Groves is a fascinating character. He did not want the job originally. He, he, had, he had just finished building the Pentagon, and he wanted to go overseas and do construction work over there. And they said, no, you're going to make this science fiction weapon that has a high chance of not working correctly. And he said, fine, if I'm going to do that, you make me a general, because he was a lieutenant colonel originally. And you make it so that we have top priority of all projects in the war, and I will take any resources and any people I want, and I will make it happen. And it turned out to be a very difficult project, much harder than they thought. Um, if you didn't have somebody like Groves at the top just pushing and pushing every day, it wouldn't have happened. Groves is directly involved in the choice of how to use the bomb and the targeting. He was directly involved in the choice of targets of what cities. And he basically, he's the guy who literally wrote the only written order to use the bomb that was ever made. There was a, a, an, an order issued on July 25th, 1945. It's, it's from one general to another, and it says the bomb, the special bomb will be dropped on one of these cities, and it's Hiroshima, Kokura, Niigata, or Nagasaki, and here's when you can do it. And then when you have another bomb ready to go, drop it as, as soon as you want to. Um, it's a very open-ended order. Uh, that was written by Groves. So... All of that machinery, he's, he's sort of behind the scenes in this case. He's certainly not as prominent as sort of like Truman, um, but he's the one who's actually making the decisions. He's the one who chooses Oppenheimer. He's the one who agrees to make a new laboratory at Los Alamos. You, you can't really top Groves for sort of most important person, even though he's not a scientist and he's not a politician. Well, you make an incredibly compelling argument for Groves, <laughs> and it might change. We might have to do some, uh, uh, you know, cleaning up of our jail because we might have sent Truman. <laughs> he might have been wrongfully convicted. <laughs> there are things you can criticize Truman for, and uh, there are things he he certainly defended the use of the bombings, and he certainly was, at Groves put it, Truman's policy was one of, of non-intervention. He didn't stop anything that was going. Truman could have said no. He could have said, let's talk about this. He could have done a million things. So in that sense, you can think of Truman as being 
important, even in his own sort of non-importance, him removing himself from the equation. What so if you want to... Yeah, yeah. yeah go, on. go on. I was going to say, so if you wanted to say Truman's ultimately responsible, Truman himself would agree with you. And that was his style. He would say it's a sort of buck stops here. So Truman never would say... No, I mean, I was barely part of it. I'm not responsible. He would. He actually took on more responsibility, frankly, than he needed to historically. So, depending on what your sort of theory of, uh, you know, blame or credit is, you can also say, well, Truman would agree with you that ultimately the fact that he enabled all of this to occur makes him responsible. He would never shed that responsibility. Wow. What do you think about the? What are your thoughts on the Japanese and their involvement? I mean, the Japanese are are definitely, you know, they 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 did uh, they 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 started the war in the Pacific against the Chinese. They did bomb up Pearl Harbor. They did uh, 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 definitely parts of their Japanese cabinet. The majority of it was committed to sort of this this. Uh, uh, bleed out the American strategy that would have been devastating to Japan and to Americans. And so the the militarists in particular, the head of the army, um, uh, the, the head of some of the, the other branches, and uh, the, the, the basically the head of the cabinet at the time who was sort of dithering over this, they're definitely complicit in, in what happened to Japan in, in their own way. Um, and I think that it's we have to keep that in mind. It's not just Americans being being jerks or anything. Uh, the Japanese were being awful to all the peoples that they conquered and, and, and even their own people. Um, I think that one of the... I, I visited Japan, and I've talked with a lot of Japanese about World War II and the atomic bombings. And there are some who see it as basically um, what Japan was owed, in a way, and that they got themselves into the situation um, and that that was the appropriate thing to have done to them in those case, there are others who sort of draw a line between the people who were running Japan, these militarists who sort of took over Japan in very forcible ways and punished people who d- dissented and people who were in favor of democracy and things like that, that really they are the ones that should have been blamed for this, not this sort of regular Japanese people who didn't have any options. Um, I think it's pretty complicated uh, but I do think we have to take into account that, yeah, that, I mean, it, it is not the case that Japan was just some passive country that got bombed. On the other hand, it doesn't necessarily mean that targeting civilians, which is what the atomic bombs mostly targeted, uh, even at Hiroshima, which had a large military base in it, 90% of the casualties are, are civilians, uh, that that's a necessarily a pr- appropriate or proportional policy. These are pretty tricky questions. So uh, the, I don't think there's a simple answer to any of this. Absolutely. Um, well, and lastly, I just wanted to kind of, um, ask you, um, or, or, or kind of like understand, you know, bring it to today's context. Um, do, do we know how many bombs the U S currently has? I mean, I, we're not trying to scare anyone here. Um, but is, is there like a scent, a sense of the world's nuclear armament? Uh, do we have an idea? Like how, how many, who has nuclear bombs and, and where are they aimed at? So there are um, uh, nine countries with nuclear weapons at the moment. Uh, the United, I'm going to do them in order in which they got them. Uh, the United States, uh, Russia, the United Kingdom, uh, France, China, India, Pakistan, 
Israel and North Korea. Is that nine? That sounds like nine. Um, and South Africa used to have nuclear weapons, but got rid of them. Um, and um, uh, the total number of weapons in the world is about uh, 13,000, a little more than that. Um, the uh, United States has about 6,000. Uh, Russia has about 6,500 or so. Um, and then after that, you get down to countries that have a lot less. So France and China both have about 300. The UK has about 200. Pakistan and India, about 150. India is about, uh, excuse me, Israel is about 80. And North Korea is probably about 20 at this point. So that's a lot of nuclear weapons. Many of these weapons are, in terms of their explosive power, um, much more powerful than the ones used at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, your standard American weapon on a submarine uh, these days is um, maybe 20 times more powerful than the Nagasaki bomb. Um, where are they aimed at? Um, mostly they're aimed at other nuclear weapons. Um, this is kind of the, the sort of paradox of the nuclear weapon is you have a nuclear weapon because somebody else has a nuclear weapon and you're aiming it at their nuclear weapon and their nuclear weapons aimed at your nuclear weapon. Um, but there's also doctrines by countries that say, well, we'd use them just against troops if we had to. We might even use them against cities if we had to. Um, as for what will happen and whether you should be disturbed, I think I think it's a realistic thing to be a bit disturbed by this. Uh, this is one of the plausible ways in which human beings could really do damage on a scale that is hard to contemplate. I mean, the, the number of deaths from a nuclear war between, say, Russia and the United States, you're, you're talking about... Um, uh, uh, tens of millions of people. And, and one way to think about this is how many holocausts, right? Like multiple, multiple holocausts. Uh, it's, it's just a, a very large scale to contemplate, many more than died in, say, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and even one nuclear weapon, let's imagine a North Korean nuclear weapon goes off over an American city. Um, that's still going to be on the order of maybe 100 times more casualties than 9-11, right? So that would be a tremendous response to that. Um, the upshot is if people do think this is not a good idea, um, many of these countries, not all of them, are uh, democracies, and their nuclear policies are set by their leaders. And if you think that nuclear issues should be handled differently than they are, uh, you know, ask people who you elect what they think about these things and push for them to take stances so that you can make choices on them. Uh, in, in principle, nuclear threats are, I think, a lot easier to deal with than some of the other threats we have in this world uh, or other problems that are larger and more emergent. These are very tightly controlled threats that are about treaties and laws and things like that. So in principle, you could you could change it. So that's the only that's the sort of silver lining I can give you. Right. It's 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 def definitely a terrifying what, what you just uh, laid out is uh, absolutely terrifying. But I I, I take your point. Um, as like, <laughs> let, let's let's try and what, gain the control, like hold on to the, what we can control. <laughs> yeah, and and also don't don't see nuclear weapons as being this thing that's off in the realm of stuff you can't have an opinion on. I mean, there it, it's it's not as complicated or as secret as most people think. And I think that we've gotten accustomed, uh, accustomed to, to thinking of it as, well, the people in Washington will handle this, but it's not 
you know, I, I think people ought to be a little bit more involved in that. Well, thank you, because this was a very difficult um, episode for us to kind of wrap our minds around and, and, and really discuss. So that is comforting um, and, and encouraging that, you know, we should all be more informed and definitely talking about these issues. So thank you for that. I'm happy to help. <laughs> uh, so uh, I just want to make sure that everyone knows, all of our listeners know that they can follow uh, you your bl- at your blog, I would say, uh, www.blog.nuclearsecrecy.com. And Alice, can you tell us where else your, our listeners can find you? Oh, you can find me at Twitter. I am Wellerstein on Twitter. And if you ever want to know exactly what would happen if a nuclear weapon went off over your hometown, um, look up my Nuke Map application where you can simulate that and no nobody is harmed by using the Nuke Map, unlike real nuclear weapons. So give it a shot. <laughs> well, I'm downloading ASAP. <laughs> As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. 
That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Alex. It was it was no really problem. a pleasure talking to you. I mean, that really shook me in many ways. Yeah. First uh, of all, did I had no idea that Truman didn't know uh, about the bomb? Well, he me, didn't until he became president. Of course, but right. there were other people in the um, in the government who knew. But about the bomb. and also, Alex did, wasn't it, he was kind of insinuating that maybe there was some reason why Truman was not informed. It yeah. kind of made me think like, oh, what was that relationship dynamic where he... Yeah, he no, d- you're right, because he then didn't he said tell that Truman. Um, the other vice president, the previous vice president, did know about the bomb. So what was it about Truman that made Roosevelt not want to tell him? He was too emotional. <laughs> 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 he knew. He knew he'd be upset. <laughs> he couldn't handle the info. That was an incredible interview, though. And I think for the all the uh, as you know, I've been very attracted to all the guest experts. But mm-hmm. that interview in particular really made me rethink our verdict. He got in my head, too. That's for sure. I mean, I, I, I was shook. I'm telling you, I was shook. It, it, like he pointed at Grimes, right? That was the one he pointed uh, Groves. at. Groves. Sorry. Groves. Groves, who was on the board. He was, and uh, we did consider giving him the big slap. Ultimately, we we ended up giving the Japanese the big slap. But it, it ended up being that Groves was the only one who had a paper trail. Like he's the one who literally wrote right. down the order. Yeah. Which and you know. He, yeah, and 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 pretty he, compelling evidence. I I, I agree. Well, Um, and I think what we did was we took the two figureheads, mm -hmm. which is logical to me. We took Truman and we took the Japanese emperor and we made them to blame. But maybe we weren't seeing the nuance there. First of all, he did say that Truman would agree with our verdict. And that made me like Truman more and think he was less guilty (laughs) because I was like, oh, what a stand up guy. (laughs) Although that doesn't matter. You, you People still go to jail if they commit crimes and they're good people. Right. Um, Did we get enough evidence from Alex to prove that Truman actually is not to blame? Rebecca, Chris, what do you think? I think that w- I couldn't send Truman to the alarmist jail without the benefit, uh, uh, without doubt. Really? Yeah. I, I would... I don't think I could be 100% on Truman now. Mm. <laughs> this is a first. Have we ever changed a verdict? No. We haven't. The only way Truman can get out of jail is if he files for an appeal and we have a hearing for him. I think I, I know what we have to do okay. because we're a jury of three. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to open up the conversation. Mm. So let's say if... Audience, weigh in on this. And in the next aftermath, if we get enough support for overturning the verdict, we will do so. Wow. 
Yes, I'll put out a poll, and everyone can vote. It will only be up for twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. So once uh, it'll it'll come out on Thursday morning, and you'll have twenty four hours to uh, weigh in. And then we'll see we'll see what happens. And email us and um, please leave us voicemails with your thoughts. And I think next week we can we can make this decision because we're we're obviously not there yet. I think right. we really do need to see where the majority of the listeners, the alarmies, stand. And this is up. This is up. Here's another pitch. Yes. Okay. So we have the big slap. Now that we have Groves, who sort of new information in a way came to light in his sort of like um, making him look really bad. What if we gave Groves not the big slap, but the big backhand? (laughs) So we go big slap. And then you come back for the backhand oh, in the I aftermath. See. It's a double. It's oh, a, well, mm. I'm thinking Groves might end up in jail. I'm thinking we put him in jail as well. Right. Okay. Great. We'll, we'll do a, a trial. A fair, we'll give Groves a fair trial. So that will be, let's say that's next week's episode of The Aftermath. And so, Chris, you said you had some story, like a nuclear story? Yes, I did. Do you guys know? So just this is referring to our current state of nuclear whatever you call it, proliferation around the world. Which, by the way, um, terrifying things that uh, Alex told us. I mean, it really makes you think. I was both terrified by what he had to say and also comforted in a way, just he seemed okay with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It's like, he, that's his job. He wasn't panicking. He wasn't breathing heavily or screaming. <laughs> he did speak with composure. So, um, but that's true. you're right. You're uh, what, what was comforting to me was that he thought that the de-escalation would could be one of the easiest things. So it, it really is in our control, and it really comforted me that we're doing the right thing by talking about these things. We shouldn't shy away from these difficult topics um, as we want to do. We want to run to a hole and not talk about these right. things. Um, but it, that was that felt very encouraging to me. And interesting that he said, you know, research who you're voting for and find out their opinions because we're coming up on the California Democratic primary election. And I've been watching all the debates and not once from what I've seen does nuclear nuclear disarmament come up in no. the debates. I don't know any of their perspectives on it. Oh so God. that's something I will now go and research. Exactly. And like um, Alex is his name, right? Yeah. Like like you said, there's no reason to be afraid of like learning about this stuff. And we really should be an educated populace who kind of votes in the right people who are going to de-escalate these nuclear bombs. I agree. So, Chris, why don't you tell us your story? Okay. Do you guys know who Stanislav Petrov is? No. No. Okay. Get he ready for this. sounds Russian. He's Russian. Okay. In 1983, Stanislav Petrov worked for the Soviet Union, and he was involved in a Soviet nuclear false alarm incident, and he is known as the man who saved the world. <gasps> what? <laughs> On September 26, 1983, three weeks after Soviet... Now I'm just reading on Wikipedia, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this is Chris's story. <laughs> this happened to a cousin so, of mine. <laughs> so it was three weeks after the Soviet military shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007. There were like over 200 people killed on that flight. And the Cold War was like at an all-time sort of tense moment. 
he the Soviet um, radar picked up five small, I guess what they call like small blips on the radar. I forget what they're called, but they picked up action from the United States coming towards the Soviet Union. Now, this guy's job, he was kind of like a cog in the wheel, but he was in charge. And his job was simply to report to his higher ups that the U.S. was bombing us. But he didn't do that. He waited. He waited for a few minutes because what would have happened is that the Soviets would have seen this information, taken this order, and they would have just ordered a counterstrike. And then the U.S. would have ordered a counterstrike on them, and it would have been total... It's what Alex was talking about. Exactly. He didn't tell his superiors, which was against his protocol. Why didn't he do that? Why didn't he do that? Because he used his gut. He checked with his gut. And his gut said... What did his gut say? The U.S. basically, if they were going to do a strike against us, he's like, they wouldn't only fire five bombs. Even though the technology was telling him that the U.S. shot five missiles, he was saying, hmm, let me think about this. Wow. And he said, no, I'm not going to tell my higher ups. And it turns out it was a malfunction. Wow. I mean, common sense is just so important. And I want to nominate this guy to be an alarmist hero. Hero. Oh, wow. And what do you get if you're an alarmist hero? A painting up on a wall? A big, Ooh, a big tickle? A big no. tickle. <laughs> no, you get the big a, clap. The big oh, clap. The big Instead clap. of the big slap. Okay, are we ready? ready What's to... his name? You've got to call it. I... Stanislav Petrov, you are an alarmist hero. Or no, it should be uh, Stanislav Petrov, you get the big clap. <laughs> wow. Incredible story, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> so Can you believe that? No, I can't. And I'm so grateful. <laughs> because normally, I've said this before, but normally when people are slow on the phone, we get mad at them. Um, <laughs> right. Like in the triangle shirtwaist yes. fire. But this is an example of someone who did the right thing. Yeah. So you have to take a deep breath, you know, before you start a nuclear war. Ain't it the truth. Amen. Amen, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> my self-help, my self-help uh, advice. Take a deep breath before you start a nuclear war. How about blow in, blow out before you blow up? Oh, oh that's good. That's what an ending. Well, um, thank Let's you. Let's tell people where we can, they can find yeah. us. Oh, I thought you were going to say where they can find Stanislav. Um, and and he, he should, I, away, should I post the um, uh, poll on Twitter or Instagram? Can you do it everywhere? I guess I can. Yeah, and do we'll it. just add up, tally up the mm-hmm. results. I think do it everywhere and then also tell people to email us, tweet at us, like, let's get the conversation started okay. and we'll sort through everything. Okay. Okay, so we are, again, remember, we're going to post this poll on uh, the day this episode comes out, and uh, you can, there will be a poll on Facebook, and the way to get to our Facebook is just going, by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. It will be on Instagram, and that's at thealarmistpodcast. It will also be on uh, Twitter, uh, and and that's, our our Twitter, Twitter handle is at alarmistthe, and 
Again, please email us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. You can post or comment, uh, send us messages via Instagram, and let's get this conversation started. We will uh, talk about it and we'll bring it up. Um, and also, don't forget, you can call the Erios hotline and leave a voicemail, 844-370-8643. And that's also in the show notes of this episode. Even if you're just casting your vote for if we should overturn the verdict with like a one sentence explanation, we'd love to hear it. Tune in next week. We'll be talking about the Carnival Cruise Triumph disaster. Bye, everyone. Bye. See you next time. Erios. Powered by ACAST.